I've created the nightmare of every Auburn and Alabama fan, which is to make people confused about who went to Alabama and who went to Auburn. This is Chapel Belker, a podcast about football and feelings. I'm Justin. I'm Nathan. And I'm Yara. I always like how you titillate us a little bit with that that pause. It's a good intro. So today we are just here to just a touch. Today we are here to preview the newest and we'll say greatest edition of the Deep South's oldest rivalry, the UGA Auburn game. If you haven't listened to one of our previews before, we will look at this both from a qualitative and quantitative standpoint. If you want that interpreted outside of SAT words, what I mean by that is the first half of this episode is just going to be us talking about dumb shit. Some of it Mm -hmm. is not the dumb shit that we did. Some of it's dumb shit other people did. The second half of the episode will be us actually trying to use our smart brains about what's going to happen on the field on Saturday. If you would like to get more involved with this or even maybe listen to a future episode live, Yara, what can the people at home do? If you want to hear us for as little as $1 a month, you can come listen to this live at patreon.com forward slash chapel bell curve. You can come hang out, come, I don't know, hang out and see what we do outside of recording podcasts on the Discord. Like make hatred bracelets about Hugh Freeze, which is what I did today. Um, Yeah. You can subscribe in increments, so $5 a month will get you access to our show notes, which in my humble opinion are a new work of art that should be installed in the Louvre. Um, (laughs) And for as much as $50 a month, you can make us talk about anything that you would like. Yeah. Or have a commercial in the podcast, which I think that's a good You could do that. Yeah. Or you can finally slake your dark hunger. (laughs) Whatever that is. Real. <laughs> um, but yeah, uh, patreon.com forward slash shoppablecurb. Come slake your dark hunger. That's, I don't know what any of those words mean, except for hunger. Slake yeah, that hunger, baby. They're not in the Quran, that's for sure. All right, so <laughs> we're going to start this episode as we ev- as we do every week with a couple of news updates. In terms of the advanced metrics, UGA is sort of trending down. We are down to fourth in our own personal power ranking of CBCR2. We are fifth in FPI, and but we are still second in SP+. I think this is a reflection both of our somewhat lackluster or maybe we would say in uneven performance over the first four games and also the slow starts on offense. Anyone within the top five, I think, should feel fine. And we still clear that 28-point margin in our CBCR2 uh, ratings that puts us as a solid playoff team. That's not anything that I would be worried about. It's just something to point out. Uh, apparently, someone else say- has written written in my notes segment that was not me. Apparently, we're on upset watch, LOL. <laughs> Justin, do you clear yeah, to elaborate? We're up. <laughs> That's all. I've just seen it in several places um, on uh, on the internet that people think that we're on upset watch. Um, so it's cute. I didn't have anything. There's nothing substantial there other than hee hee. That's funny. <laughs> Can we just clip this out and send <laughs> it to Kirby? Let's just no. We, yep. we don't want to. We don't want to treat this as a hee hee. We need to help give the team energy. So we'll say they think we're going to lose to Auburn by twenty. They say we're going to go seven and yeah. five. That's mm-hmm. what they're saying, Kirby. You better tell them. 
Anyway, we are barely yeah. bowl eligible. Y'all fuckers. Yeah, yeah absolutely. <laughs> That's what they're saying. A couple of injury updates, mm-hmm. speaking of actual things that happen on the field. It seems like it seems like tentatively things are trending well for Lad McConkey. If you want to try to interpret this word salad that Kirby puts out, I think sometimes he intentionally word salads what he says about players. But on Lad McConkey, he says he did some things today. He got to practice. He didn't do much on Monday. He ran <laughs> routes and caught balls. Then today he got in plays and ran routes. I saw him some, but I didn't see enough to judge it. I'm going to go watch the tape of the periods I wasn't over there to, uh, with him to see what he looks like. We're trying to progress him back slowly, whether it's this week in a role or the future. Not trying to rush him back. I am interpreting this to mean that we will see Lad McConkey in a limited way. I don't know if any of you have a better insight into how Kirby Smart abuses the English language. I think that's fair. I mean, it sounds like. I, I every time I a lot of times I listen to Kirby Smart in the media coverage and it, it just seems like he just feels like he has better things to do, <laughs> which he does. I feel this is part of his job, sure, but it is not as important of as a many other parts of his job. On Kendall Milton, he says Kendall was able to go today and de- did some stuff. I saw him out there, but it didn't get to see how much he did or how he looked doing it. I'll evaluate that on tape, but he was able to take reps and go cut and do some things. I wouldn't also be shocked if we saw both Lad McConkey and Kendall, like on a pitch clock, maybe. Mikel Williams, perhaps our best pass rusher, actually our best pass rusher, I would say, outside of Warren Britson. It looks like he is good to go. He was out with an illness in the last game. Mikel did some exercise today and felt better, hoping he'll be able to go. Don't know that, but we'll probably know by by tomorrow. I don't know what illness he had, but it sounded like it was something that really put him under the weather. The good news is if he had a relatively minor illness, there usually is a clock on that where he'll be able to come back full strength. Perhaps the most encouraging thing was Kirby Smart's released quotes before and after practice on Tuesday about Javon Bullard. He said Javon was able to do more today. He felt the best he had. He did walkthroughs and ran to the side. He did some scout period stuff. Again, those guys are going to be really close right there, along with Ladd and Kendall. It could be into the weekend before we know. And then he had said before, I think he said that one after practice, and he said before practice, we think he's going to be able to do more, hoping to get him back. We'll know more if he gets more done today and tomorrow and is able to practice. We'll obviously know more. So to me, it sounds like Javon Bullard is getting close to coming back. I think of those, Javon is probably the most, and I say that as though I know him, that Javon is probably, it seems like has the best prognosis other than Mikel Williams, who it looks like is definitely going to be back. Do you guys have any any personal reactions to that injury news? I'm, I'm sitting here and I'm trying to find like I want to put these up on a board and try to find like the common language across all of these because I feel like looking at these, the Lad McConkey and the Kendall Milton news both seem very similar in that Kirby Smart seemed to say stuff things and then we'll see. <laughs> but then the other ones, Michael Williams and Javon Bullard, seemed more sure. With both of those, Mikel Williams is like, yeah, he's feeling better. And then Javon Bullard was like, uh, he's as good as he's going to get right now. And he also did throw a stuff in there, too. So I don't know if there's anything to read into there, but uh, just felt like pointing out those, those specific similarities. So with that, I guess I've got two more segments to get out of the way before we get into Yara's opus here. If you had signed up for our Patreon at $5 or above, you could see our show notes in which Yara's one segment takes up, uh, I'd say about a third of the, of the entire, of the entire page. So 
First, we're going to do a history of Auburn. Originally for this, I just wrote, it's Auburn, fuck them. But I guess I owe it to you guys to go a little bit more in depth. Uh, Originally, it was opened in 1859. I believe it was chartered in 1856. It was the first land-grant university in Alabama. It was also the first co-educational university in Alabama. I believe it started admitting women in 1872. Uh, It actually has had four names, East Alabama Meal College, Agricultural and Mechanical College of Alabama, Alabama Polytechnic Institute, and Auburn from 1960 to now. Now, Auburn was originally associated with the Methodist Church, which is very appropriate based on the current state of Auburn football fandom. I'm not sure when their official relationship with the Methodist Church ended, but I'm pretty sure it has. And I can't find anyone who talks about it, which is odd. I'm sure that the people at Auburn are very uncomfortable with the separation of church and state. LOL, just kidding. So mascot history-wise, their mascot is the Tigers, as we already probably all know. And Aubie has actually been around since 1959, which I think is hilarious because it what it means is that there was one football season in which Aubie was the mascot of Alabama Polytechnic Institute, which is hilarious to me. So we are not actually sure where the t- there there is some argument in the in among historians of Alabama or of Auburn history of about where the tiger mascot come from comes from. But the saw is that the the nickname comes from the Oliver Goldsmith poem, The Deserted Village, which is cool because it's a decent poem. It's a little long, but it is also cool because that is why I didn't go to Auburn even after I got accepted there because it is very much a deserted village and feel. If you want a small town atmosphere, it's great and it's very quaint, but might it have one bit at one point been a sundown town? I don't know. That's the history of the mascot. You're getting into the other nicknames here. Yeah. The, the mascot, okay, so it's kind of confusing. Just if, if, if this is your first Auburn preview, there is a mascot, which is the Tigers. There is the War Cry, which is War Eagle. And then is there, there's the nickname for the fans, with this, which is the Plainsmen. The Plainsmen, or women, I guess, or people, came from the town's nickname, which also comes from the poem because it refers to Auburn as this place, this deserted village in England as Auburn, the loveliest village on the plains. And also the Plainsman is the name of the school newspaper. It's interesting because like most of Alabama, it is, I would say, not a plane, but whatever. The War Eagle thing, I think, is rooted in the history of the Confederacy and shouldn't be celebrated. But it is cool that they do have a live eagle. I think that's pretty dope. I also know that a a lot of our bullshit hmm. is, is rooted in the history of the Confederacy. So I guess I can't judge. I was trying to remember, there was a specific story. We've told it on this. I can briefly recap. So like in their first season play i believe first or second season playing football which was pretty soon after the founding of the school like 1869 maybe there was a world war or world war geez a civil war veteran who had apparently brought an eagle that he kept as a pet that he had had in the civil war with him to a game and the eagle Mm -hmm. flew around the stadium and then landed on the goalpost and they would say war eagle because it is an eagle that he had had when he was in the confederate army which to me is a very auburn thing because there's nothing auburn likes to do more than back a loser and so far as i know the confederacy (laughs) is own one baby it just means more that's all i have on the history of auburn i want to go into what i'm so excited about which is my favorite segment notable Mm -hmm. nemeses this is a game that we play Every preview podcast or the last three preview podcasts. (laughs) 
since I invented it. It's a new thing. It's a new thing I invented, and I didn't tell my co-host about it, and we still haven't discussed whether or not it's a good idea. But we're doing (laughs) it. So this is my favorite one of all of them that I've done. So what I'm going to do is I have two rounds. The first round, I'm going to name you a series of notable figures. Of these figures, Mm -hmm. four of these attended Auburn, three did not. And you guys are going to guess which ones did and which ones didn't. All right, are we ready? So three of these did not go to Auburn. Four of them did. First up, we have Elmo Shropshire, a songwriter most known for writing the song Grandma Got Ran Over by a Reindeer, which, Yara, it occurs to me now that you might not know that song. I know that song. Okay. Hey. I don't want to assume your familiarity with Christian like Christmas tradition. Christmas is my favorite holiday that's not like all of the Muslim holidays. I just think it's fun. I j- I like the Christmas spirit, okay? I can get I can get down and jiggy with the entire month of November slash December. I just like being cheerful. I didn't realize we were bringing jiggy back either. Thank you. I think Elmo Shropshire was definitely an Auburn alumna. Alumni. All right. What about you? Yeah. I feel like you played this differently than last time. Oh, I did. There's this. It's a totally different metagame. You embarrassed me on the last one. And I did. I had to up my game here. So okay. the first one, he's not from Auburn. Next, we have Timothy Leary, LSD advocate. He had a lot of roles in his life, but that's probably what he's most known for: is the promotion of LSD culture in the Hate Ashbury district of San Francisco in the seventies. Oh, not the Latter Day Saints. That that would be LDS. My bad. Yeah. Okay, that's what I was thinking. Timothy Leary uh, didn't didn't invent LSD, but he is very famously associated with. It. I don't think so. no, I don't think so. I think LSD is too cool of a drug to come out of like Auburn. There's not enough parties, you know. Yara, what was your guess? No, I agree with Justin. All right, next up we have Harper Lee, favorite author of every guy who doesn't get <laughs> race ra- race relations in America on a fundamental fundamental level. A favorite author of every guy who hasn't actually read To Kill a Mockingbird has just like seen part of the movie and read the back of the book. I should know the answer to this. You should. It's embarrassing that you don't instantly, but it's all right. Yeah. I'm going to say yes. Yes. I agree. Next off, Gianna Dior, adult film star. War Damn Eagle. That's an Auburn grad. I'll I'll say yeah with you. This one you should know. Tim Cook, CEO of Apple. I'm going to say no. It wouldn't surprise me. I say yes. Okay. Oh, wow. I thought for sure that one would be the gimme. Really? Yeah. That one is pretty well known. Oh, shit. Catherine Stockett, I don't favorite know. author of every woman who doesn't get race relations in America on a fundamental level. <laughs> Catherine Stockett wrote the book The Help. Ooh, I think that's a yes. We've had too many yeses so far. I'm going to say no. And finally, Jimmy Wales. You know him as the man who makes an impassioned plea to you every time you look up something random on Wikipedia. <laughs> he is one of the co-founders of Wikipedia. I think I have to say no based on my previous answers. And then I'm going to take a second to think about what I want to change potentially. All right. Yara, what about you? Yes. All right. Take a moment. Lock your answers in. To review, Elmo Shropshire, I'm a no. Yara's a yes. Timothy Leary, we're both no's. Harper Lee, we're both yeses. Gianna Dior, I'm a yes, you're a no. Tim Cook, yeses. Catherine Stockton, I'm a yes, you're a no. Jimmy Wales, I'm a no, you are a yes. All right. So let's review our answers now that, you know, I'm, I, I think I'm going to put in a good long, a good by long, I mean, three second pause before this. So starting at the top, Elmo Shropshire, a proud Auburn graduate, Timothy Leary, LSD advocate and proud fan of the Crimson Tide. Uh, he went to Alabama. Gianna Dior, War Damn Eagle, adult film star and Auburn grad. Harper Lee, wild coincidence, 
also went to Alabama. Tim Cook, Apple CEO, famously went to Auburn. He's on the sidelines of a lot of Auburn games. Okay. Whew. Kind of a coincidence here again. Catherine Stockett also went to Alabama. And finally, huh. Jimmy Wales did go to Auburn, but also, oh, what you know, he went to Alabama. <laughs> so what I've done here is I've I've created the nightmare of every Auburn and Alabama fan, which is to make people confused about who went to Alabama and who went to Auburn, because they're just the same church in different fonts. And that leads us to our second round of notable nemeses. Now, these are going to be much more based on vibes. There's not really a good way for you to intuit these out. You're going to have to just totally do these on. Oh, vibes. my God. OK, there are 11 names here. And what I have done is I've chosen six Opelika or Auburn area non-denominational churches with weird names. And then I have made Mm -hmm. up five names of non-denominational churches that sound like they would be in the Opelika Auburn area. Because as everyone knows, there's nothing that Auburn grads like more than a Bible study. So I'm going to read through these. And these are just pure vibes. You've got to tell me which one of these are- This is my hell. Which one of these are real functional churches- and which one of these are things from my brain? <laughs> Nathan, I've seen all of these churches in every town in Georgia. <laughs> <laughs> Auburn is pretty famously the churchiest, uh, the churchiest little village on the plain. There's nothing that an Auburn grad likes to do more than tell you about how they served probation and went to their small group at the same time. So here's 11 names. Vibe out. Just tell me, is this real or is it not? First up, City Church. Absolutely. Yeah, they've got a City Church. Yes. All right. No. I changed my mind. No. I didn't like your I didn't like the way that you just <laughs> no? responded to me. Okay. <laughs> Yara's playing the meta game here. Absolutely. Compass Church? Compass Church. I'm going to say yes. Yes. You're shaking your knee. I promise you, these are so like there is no pokering your way out of this. You're gonna, yes, you're gonna just have to. Okay, fine. All right. Third, first free will church. Absolutely not. No. All right. It's very made up. It's got to be four. One hope church. Yes. Yes. Five. Double portion church. <laughs> what is double portion church? <laughs> I'm not really no, familiar I, with the concept of like what going to church is like. I yeah. I've gone to like a few because I like to, you know, go to different di- like go to different religious places of worship in order to make an effort to educate myself. And when you when you say double portion church, does that mean like what you know how sometimes they have food in the mornings and you can go maybe you go get a double portion. Either way, this is not a real church. There's <laughs> It's got to be the only explanation. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Next up, the Bridge Church. Yes. Uh, How many are fake? Three? Four of them are fake. God. Four of them are fake. This isn't real. One, two. This makes me live. (laughs) This this is like, I I cannot explain to you the like childlike glee that is written on my face right now. Like my face hurts. I'm smiling so big. You understand now the joy I had every time I make you play a game where I'm just playing it to trick you. <laughs> yes. All right. What's next? Cornerstone Church. Yeah. I'm going to say yes. We've already said no to four. So I guess the last three are going to be yeah. Next up, the Open Church. 
No. I don't believe it. Yes. That that sounds like <sighs> a church. The final oh. answer, or the final question, <laughs> is the Connect Church. Or actually, I'm sorry, Connect Church. Hold on. Differentiate what you just said. What? It's <laughs> Go not, ahead and clarify a bit. The, it's not the Connect Church. It's Connect okay. Church. Interesting. Yes. That's a real church. Now that makes me question the Bridge Church. Oh, I left one off here. I left one off of my left. I left, oh, oh, I left two off. I'm so excited that I get to give you these live that you haven't seen. I'm going to say yes for Connect Church. What about you, Yara? Yeah. Okay. You got LifeGate Church? That's absurd. LifeGate mm. Church. Next level church? Fuck right off, Nathan. <laughs> <laughs> so the last two, next as, level. as you heard, are LifeGate Church and Next Level Church. There's. I don't think those are real. That's like, this Sunday, you want to come with me to Minecraft Church, my friends? Does anybody want to go like fight some ghouls with me, my dudes? Like... People were just up in this church like, how do I reach these kids? I just want to point out one little uh, font or grammar idiosyncrasy here that LifeGate Church is spelled with a capital L and a capital G. It's important to me that, that our audience knows that. <sighs> okay, that one has I have to, to be say real, that I Next guess. Level and LifeGate are both real because... Oh my god. They have to be, right? Yara, yeah. what, what are you guessing for both of those? Hold on. It sounds correct to me. I'm so... I'm so mind boggled right now. I just came back from a full day of education at our higher institution, and now I'm guessing the names of churches. So I'm going to say, yeah, they're real. <laughs> All right. This Let is me the go worst. through the answers here. All right. City Church is actually the full name of it, of it is City Church of Opelika. That is real. Compass Church oh. is also real. It's in Auburn. The Bridge Church okay. is also in Opelika. Cornerstone Church is in Auburn. LifeGate Church is in Opelika. And Connect Church okay. is also in Opelika. Now, okay. what about the others you might be saying? Well, One Hope Church is a real <laughs> church in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. Double Portion Church is also a real church in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. The Open Church is a real church in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. And Next Level Church is a real church in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. Because Auburn and Alabama are the same. And the only difference is that one group of people from Alabama got Nick Saban on their staff and the other didn't. I don't even care who wins. That, why didn't I see that coming? <laughs> Oh, wow. Oh, you piece of shit. All right. (laughs) The day I got married, (laughs) the day I met my niece, and then this. It's like third. This is like one of, this is some of the happiest I've ever been in my life. This is a strategic move on my part because, Yara, I know that you've been sort of like promulgating, you've been fomenting, you've been churning with rage. Like a just like an infinite internal gyre of ire and anger at you freeze. And I support that. I I I'm not a fighter, I'm a lover. But I think that we should all be mad at Hugh Freeze until we need Pepto Bismol. So I wanted to get you in the right headspace <laughs> by pissing you off with an ultimately stupid game made by a liar, which is what also Hugh Freeze does. So, Yara, why don't you take us into our next segment? 
A Brief History of Hugh Freeze, the head coach at Auburn University. Dear listeners, this is the first time that I've really gotten like into some researching. And I like to think I'm a pretty studious person, like in my free time. I love writing essays. I love researching things until there's no tomorrow. And I got it for the past 48 hours. I've been into this shit, like questionably so. So I've separated um, my research into two portions, the rise of Hugh Freeze and the fall of Hugh Freeze. Okay. And yeah, we're just going to get into it. We are starting right out of high school for Mr. Hugh Freeze. He went to college at Northwest Mississippi Community College in eight in 1988, not 1888. I was like, 18? <laughs> he's a vampire. <laughs> no, he's actually... <laughs> That's why yes. he's so bad at being a Christian. He's a vampire. <laughs> Real. Somebody needs to look into that. And he lettered there in junior college baseball for two years. And then he transferred to the University of Southern Mississippi, tried making out or tried out for the baseball team in the fall of 1990. And I making tried making out with the baseball team. <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised. And he, Good for him. Uh, he make, he tried to make the roster for the following season of spring 1991. He was cut from the team. After graduating from Southern Miss with a bachelor's in mathematics and a minor in coaching and sports administration in 1992, he joined the Briarcrest Christian School in uh, Memphis, Tennessee, as the defensive backs coach, offensive coordinator, and dean of students, Hmm. before being promoted to head coach in 1995. Under Freeze, the team won the state championship in 2002 and 2004, as well as regionals from 1995 to 1998, as well as 2001 and 2002. He was the Region 8 AA Coach of the Year five times and AP Coach of the Year four times. He was also depicted in The Blind Side by Michael Orr, who filed a lawsuit last month. Um, and that's a whole nother can of worms. But, mm-hmm. yeah. Um while at Briarcrest, Freeze coached the girls' basketball team. Who let him do that? From 1992 to 2004, <laughs> the team actually had a .829 winning percentage. I know stats. This is a stats podcast. As well as seven straight Those are stats. championship appearances and four championships. He was also accused of sexual misconduct by several female students at Briarcrest during his time there. You know, a high school. In 2005, Mm. he was hired by Ole Miss as the assistant athletic director for football external affairs. And the following year, he was promoted, I guess, to tight ends coach and recruiting coordinator. And he was the interim coach after Ed Orgeron. 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 Yeah, it's fine. Let it apply. (laughs) Yep. Until Houston Nutt was hired. And he interviewed for the offensive coordinator position under Nutt, but it went to Kent Austin. Because Hugh Freeze is what? Unhirable. He, yeah, he began his head coaching career at Lambeth, which is an NAIA school in 2008, where he got a 20 to 5 overall record in the span of two years. Then he went to Arkansas State under Steve Roberts as the offensive coordinator. Um, And he went there after spending two months at San Jose State as the offensive coordinator there. Fascinating. I don't think. How do you quit a job in like two months? Actually, I'm not going to say that. I've quit a job in the under that. (laughs) (laughs) He was promoted to head coach at Arkansas State after Roberts was fired and spent one season there. 
where he won the Sun Belt Conference title. And he actually left before Arkansas's appearance at the GoDaddy.com Bowl. I Damn. really like the GoDaddy.com Bowl. Why are you going to no sleep on the GoDaddy.com Bowl? Nobody sleep on that shit. I think it should be a New Year's Six Bowl, even though it's no longer called that. <laughs> um, he was announced at the as the head coach of Ole Miss in December of 2011, where he signed a four-year contract with an annual salary of $1.5 million per season, plus up to $2.5 million in incentives. Although his salary was later reported to be $4.7 million, making him the highest paid employee in Mississippi, which, ha- which at a poverty rate of 24.2% in 2012, was the most impoverished state in the country. Hmm. Oof. I fucking hate this man, y'all. I'm not even done. He took Ole Miss to a 6-6 record during his first year there. He got a victory over Mississippi State in the Egg Bowl and won the BBVA Compass Bowl. Over Pitt, he also helped Ole Miss bring in the fifth-ranked recruiting class on National Signing Day 2013. He, by his third season there, he had them get a seven and zero start, the best since Johnny Vaught. They finished nine and three, but made an appearance in the 2014 Peach Bowl, which is the biggest bowl since Vaught and the first major bowl since the 1970 Sugar Bowl. Um, and after that, he beat Alabama 43-37 to in Tuscaloosa, making Q the third SEC head coach besides Les Miles, hopefully that's right, mm-hmm. and Steve Spurrier to be, uh, to defeat Nick Saban's team in back-to-back years. They then went to the 2016 Sugar Bowl, winning 48-20 over Oklahoma State and ninth in the AP poll and 10th in the Coaches Bowl, which were the first top 10 finishes in final polls since 1969. Ooh. Thoughts on that before I get to the <laughs> fall of Hugh Freeze. I want to know where where you believe after all this research. Can you triangulate sort of his his villain origin story? Like where did it begin? The origin story. The day he was born. Can I just give like a couple of pieces of like uh, extra textual context here, as someone who knows yes. a lot about the bad side of SEC recruiting. Hugh Freeze Freeze was hired as the whatever assistant AD for external affairs because of his connections in Memphis recruiting. Ole Miss is actually really close to Memphis. Memphis is the the closest large uh, city to Ole Miss, you know, if you don't count the city that they're in, which you shouldn't. And uh, he was hired like exclusively for his connections in the Memphis high school coaching circles and his ability to deliver players from that. He also was hired from the get-go as a de facto bag man. Hugh Freeze was never the person paying people, but he was the dude who was organizing the person paying people. Because before NIL, when you wanted to pay a player, the head coach would never be involved. There would always be some other guy who was mediating the transactions between players and coaches. Carry on. Interesting. So it's all dirty money. What a oh, fun. Oh, it's all dirty, baby. Delicious. All right. <laughs> Who's ready for my favorite part? We got the lore. The we fall. got act one of this musical. Now it's time for act two. The well, Ladies, gentlemen, everybody, welcome to the fall of Hugh Freeze. In early 2016, the NCAA formally charged the Ole Miss football team with 13 fucking compliance allegations. And the redacted version was originally available somewhere under a paywall, which I got behind because I know how to do things. And then I went ahead and found the unredacted version because it's way more fun. So here are the highlights that I found in there. 
He was accused of having people hunt on a booster's land. These are these are the um, ones that they accepted like blame for. Hunting on a booster's land. Hmm. Paying for lodging and transport of recruits, knowingly committing recruitment violations, and then they partially accepted and partially contested. Pay, uh, contacting recruits with, like, cash payments and a bunch of other ill shit. So, like, NIL before NIL was cool. And... They, like, no-load, yeah. No-load yeah. contendere. And full... <laughs> like, I cannot <laughs> confirm nor deny. Facts. And here's the full contestment. Um, impermissible merch. Illegal contact with recruits. Providing recruits with money and food. And Hugh frees mm. himself violating responsibility legislation. Fun. Also, Sounds they fixed serious. recruits' ACT scores, which I think is Ooh. really fucking funny. Why Why do we need to do that? Why can't we do I know that this is, like, how college football works, but why can't we just study? It's not that hard. And they also got help with car loans. Um, Hugh Freeze told the reporters... <laughs> Hugh Freeze told the reporters that most of the violations happened under his night. And when Laramie Tunsil admitted to taking money from a Freeze assistant, the investigation was reopened. And also, during this time, Hugh Freeze was, like, lying to recruits about how severe these allegations were in order to make them, you know, come to the SIP and all this shit. Um, <laughs> after this... Uh... We are Ole Miss got eight more violation like notifications, which, if you're counting, dear listener, brings the total to 21 allegations against the football team. During this time, a bunch of recruits got waivers from the NCAA to transfer without any penalties, and Nutt actually sued Freeze for like dragging his name through the dirt. And that got settled later, and Ole Miss personally apologized to him and everything. This is the fun part. During the discovery period of the lawsuit, Nutt's lawyers filed a freedom of information request for calls Freeze made on his school cell phone during January 2016. Y'all know where this is going. They Mm -hmm. filed a call to a number associated with a female escort service and told Ole Miss officials about it. And that was the tip of the iceberg because they found over 12, at least, Phone calls to various escort services over the course of 33 months, all made while Hugh Freeze was on private business trips with an Ole Miss plane. Huh. How do you fuck up that badly? Like, what are you doing? I don't know. I don't know. That pissed me off. But Freeze was given an ultimatum to resign or be fired for cause, and he chose to resign. Ole Miss was punished for both Freeze and Nutt's actions with a two, th- what I call a two, three, four punishment. Two year postseason ban three years of probation, and a four-year ban on certain scholarships. The NCAA also forced Ole Miss to vacate 33 wins from 2010 to 2016. 27 of these wins were he freezes. His record at Ole Miss is now 12 and 25, leaving only his 2015 season untouched. Yeah. Damn. After this, he went to Liberty, um, and he also declined the offensive coordinator position for the Arizona Hotshots of the AAL. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but his problematic tendencies did not stop at Ole Miss. He sent sexual assault activist Liberty Grad and sexual assault survivor Chelsea Andrews several unsolicited unsolicited DMs, as in Twitter DMs, Damn. concerning her lawsuit brought forth against Liberty about how they handled her sexual assault case. She was critical about the hiring of Ian McCall, who resigned at Baylor after the university sanctioned him for not responding to sexual violence by student-athletes. Freeze was all up in her DMs and said, like, 
oh, Ian McGraw is like the most Jesus-like leader I have ever seen or been around. Which, why are you DMing random ass people? Like, this is still, I guess this is still a thing that's happening now. He just doesn't know how to do social media. Um, and yeah, that's my complete in-depth research on Hugh Freeze. Thank you for coming to my now he's back. talk. Yeah, now he is. Mm. Do y'all have any thoughts? I do. I would like to speak. Go ahead. Justin, <laughs> I would like to speak. Justin, this once this train starts moving, there's not a lot of breaks. So if you have anything to say, like now's the time, bud. No, no. This is the part where we say now Nathan is going to speak calmly about Hugh Freeze and Auburn. And then I believe that Yara wrote Inshallah after that. God will. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Which I don't think that's the case. The floor is yours. I, I yield my time. have grown up in the church. You know, my father is a Methodist minister. And one of the things that growing up as the child of a minister does is it provides you an interesting insight into both the highs and lows of organized religion, the the great good and grace and love that it can bring to people, and simultaneously the pitfalls that that literally ruin people's lives in various obvious and unobvious ways. And so if I am critical of Hugh Freeze's treatment of religion and of Christianity in particular, please understand that I am doing this, this the call is coming from inside of the house. In my 35 years on Earth, I have been a, a true believer and an agnostic and an atheist and have back to sort of like, well, I think I sort of believe and I, you know, would say I consider myself a Christian. So please understand that this is not some atheist tried to come after Christianity. I'm saying these things about Hugh Freeze and his treatment of Christianity and what he means to college football because I know I'm from the South. I'm a straight white guy. I don't think that I could have better credibility to talk about someone who is abusive of the lineage of Jesus Christ than I do. I just want to set that up as background. So the problem is that when we talk about Hugh Freeze, we often get confused between two different things. Hugh Freeze's failings that matter are not moral. I don't care about his moral failings. Now, I don't like them. I have no particular problem with sex workers, and I think that sex workers should generally be better regulated and legal. I am in no way supportive of the way that he chicken shit made his wife come up to an apology press conference after he was caught, you know, basically having sex with workers while on company time. But that's not the problem. Hugh Freeze's problems, I think, are ethical in nature. And they are ethical because Hugh Freeze is himself an amoral being. He does not care about anything other than success. And this is not an ad hominem attack that I'm making on him. His record has shown that the thing that he cares about is the propagation of his good name and reputation and his ability to make money coaching football games. He does not care who he hurts. He does not care about how he gets there. He only cares about the results. And I suppose that there's a sense in which I respect that because that is in a less metastasized, cancerous version of the idea, something I respect about people like Kirby Smart. I respect an efficient mind that that pushes unerringly towards a goal. But the problem is that Hugh Freeze has consistently destroyed the lives of student athletes and students under him and betrayed the ethical promise that he made as both an educator and a coach when he got into this business. And 
that would be bad enough. We've kicked people out of college football for that. You're not going to see Art Briles back in college football again, I don't think, because of those similar failings. What's galling about Hugh Freeze is that he cloaks himself in a kind of stereotypically conservative Southern Christianity while doing these things. And that's not really what's galling, actually. People do that all the time. He, I mean, he's in Auburn. I mean, they're sure as shit comfortable with cloaking yourself in Christianity and then going and getting going to a swingers party in Lake Wadawi on Saturday night. That's not the problem. The problem is that he got away with it. We collectively as a college football fandom, and I guess not us really, but the people that be in college football accepted that it was okay for him to betray the trust of the people that were that were entrusted to him and that it was okay to note both morally ethically and fiduciarily fail his employers as long as he won football games and that i think is the issue it's that he so easily has been able to hide under the shallow vacuous christo fascism that ha- that is a, a great cancer i believe on the southern united states and he got away with it right and i think Ultimately, we can't do anything about that because what is important in college football at the end of the day is money. And the people who know that he is this way and could do something about it don't care about it. And so the only thing that we can do to who freeze and the only way we can hurt him, because clearly this man has no shame and will not accept any of the criticism laid at his feet. The only thing we can do is humiliate him. The only way to change Anything about Hugh Freeze as a coach is to beat him so fu- so badly that we excise what he is from the face of the college football landscape, which is a cancer. This man is representative of the metastasized, cankerous, and what I would say is purely evil forces of greed, avarice, and weaponization of Christianity that are I think ruining college football, if anything is ruining college football. And the only way to to remove this. The only way to save this patient is to cut the limb off at the source. I do not care who Auburn plays. I need Auburn to lose by 70 points in every game. And it's not even because I hate Auburn. It's not like that people from Georgia don't go to small groups and are worthy of being made fun of because of their activities on the weekends. And it's not like that people from Georgia don't go to non-denominational churches with weird names. But Georgia didn't hire someone who is what I think of as a predator. And we can't affect anybody's mind about this other than by stamping this man out in public, repeated humiliation and disgrace. And if I wish anything on him, it's failure. Because I can't take his money and I can't take his shame because he doesn't have any. But what I can do is hope that my team and every other team that plays him crushes his legacy into the dust that it so richly deserves. Let's do the quantitative review. That was lovely. It really was. Like, I started by saying, now Nathan is going to talk calmly about Hugh Freeze and Auburn, fully feeling like I was saying something facetiously. But you did speak calmly about Hugh Freeze and Auburn. Though firmly and critically. All right. We're about to get into the second portion of the episode. We're going to get into our quantitative episode uh, portion. And um, I'm going to leave it in the very capable hands of both of my co-hosts, Yara and Nathan, because I am going to go and relive my childhood for a couple hours and go see Jimmy Eat World at the Georgia Theater. So I am signing off. It is go dogs as always.
beat Tigers or whoever they think they are this week. And fuck you, Freeze. I love you both. Give them the numbers, y'all. All right, Yara. So I have so many things to say quantitatively. I have so much information. I'm so excited. And, you know, I'm married to a woman who is very used to me just like vomiting up whatever my current hyperfixation is. And I don't want to do that to someone without consent. So <laughs> I'm going to give you, I'm going to give you these kind of in chunks and then I'll pause and any response you have, any, any insight you have. I, I think that you are, you are a keen football mind and you have, can have some things to say about this. So I'm just going to give you this in like a, a series of segments. And if you're ever at a point where you're like, I do wish this dumbass would stop talking so we can just talk about what we want to see, just tell me. Let's start with some players to know. Let's get to know Auburn. So personnel-wise, it kind of starts, I think, both the vision for how this football team could be good and the reason that they have struggled this year starts at the quarterback position as it does with most football teams. Now, one of the interesting things about this team, if if interesting is a euphemism for bad, I suppose, is that they actually are playing two quarterbacks. They are running what I would say is liberally called a two-quarterback system. So Peyton Thorne is their starting quarterback and Michigan State transfer. Peyton Thorne is a fine whatever quarterback. He's a middle-of-the-road quarterback. So far this year, he's 49 for 75 for 564 yards. That's a 65.3 completion percentage with a 66.7 adjusted completion uh, percentage, which is Pretty bad for a starting quarterback in the SEC. I'm going to be totally honest. For an Auburn starting quarterback, that's kind of shocking. Like, you want your adjusted completion percentage to be higher than your completion percentage, especially if it's low, because that would indicate that maybe you'd been taking too much pressure or had too many sacks or you had just receivers making drops and stuff. But the fact that it only went up by a point and a half is like, oh, they're catching the balls. He's just not accurate. He's thrown four touchdowns Mm. and has three picks to this point in the year in four games played. He's coming off of a 6-for-12 performance for 44 yards against Texas A&M, a game in which they lost and only scored 10 points. They He has 17 rush attempts for 153 yards, but 124 of those yards came after against Samford, their one FCS opponent for the year. Now, the second quarterback is Robbie Ashford. Robbie Ashford is, I mean, I guess I would say recruiting services-wise, probably the quote-unquote better quarterback. He, he definitely has a better recruiting pedigree. He almost transferred out a couple of times. He is their running quarterback, basically. He has 20 rush attempts for the year for 91 yards and a 4.1-yard average. He's a big guy who can run. He is not the most elusive guy. His PFF elusiveness scores is not great, but he is averaging 2.7 yards per contact per attempt. He's a big dude who shrugs off tackles pretty well. 86 of his yards were on designed runs. He's running it a lot. He's only 7 for 17 on the on the year through the air for 65 yards and a touchdown. I would say that he throws the ball enough to convince people that he is a quarterback, and that's about it. Just enough to keep the defense maybe a little bit ominous, uh, honest, maybe. Now, kind of finishing out the people to look for in their offensive line or on their offensive side, they kind of have a running back by committee led by Jarquez Hunter and Damari Alston, who are averaging 4.6 and 5 yards per carry. This is a run first team in pretty much every iteration, every every way. And so those are the dudes that you're going to see. Jarquez Hunter has been around Auburn for a little bit for a while, and he's a talented guy. Defensively, I would say that their most 
impactful player is probably Donovan Kaufman. He is a safety and a star. Uh, he plays mostly star in their coverage scheme. He is a very good run defender and an incredibly effective blitzer. They blitz a lot of guys from the second level using the creeper concepts, which we can talk about in a minute. But he is sort of a liability in the uh, in the coverage. On the other hand, Jalen Simpson, their other safety, is a very good coverage guy, but he's a liability in the run. They have a pretty strong defensive line that's re- that's led by Marcus Harris and Keldrick Falk. In particular, Marcus Harris has been very effective this year. So, any thoughts so far, Yara? Um, I think running two quarterbacks is certainly a choice to be made. Yeah. Especially if one of them is, um, how do I say this nicely? A little lackluster. Let's yeah. see. I did math on this one, righty? So you said that there were one hundred and f- there were 17 rush attempts for 153 yards, but 124 of them came against Sanford. That's 29 total yards that weren't FCS. Hmm. And not to, not to discredit FCS at all, but like, hmm. It does make you what think. What time? I think, yeah. What a questionable moment we're having here at Auburn University. All right, let's keep partying. All right, team personality. This team can't throw the ball for shit. They're bad at it. They don't like the forward <laughs> pass. They hate it. They're 103rd in EPA per, plas- uh, per play passing. They're not effective at passing the ball. And when they do pass the ball, bad things often happen. They're not that much better at rushing in 85. They're in 85th in the nation in EPA per play rushing. Now, they do have the highest rush rate in the SEC. They run the ball a lot, and they're doing on a yards well on a yards gain basis. I think they're the most prolific rushing attack in the SEC at this point in the season because they're running so much. But on a per play basis, they're not that great. They're not that explosive. They're a little bit under below average in explosive plays. They are at 4.2 points per opportunity, which is pretty good. Basically, Anytime they possess the ball inside of the 40 of their opponents, uh, their opponent, they are averaging 4.2 points per opportunity. However, they only have, they only have opportunities about 49% of the time. So just over half of their uh, drives never even reach the opponent's 40. So they actually don't get that many opportunities in which to do their 4.2 yards or uh, points per opportunity. So this explains the score totals that they've had so far this year. If you look at Auburn's and, and I know it's sort of a joke in college football podcasting that you shouldn't play the schedule game where you just read off like a schedule that a team has. But if you look at Auburn's football schedule to this point in the year, they played UMass in their first game and they beat them 59 to 14. In their second game, they played uh, they played Cal and they beat them fourteen to ten. So they've got that fifty nine pointer against UMass, one of the worst FBS teams in the nation. Then they played Samford, a bad FCS team, and they scored forty five. Then they played Texas A and M, a I guess okay SEC team, and they scored ten against Power Five competition this year. They are averaging twelve points a game. They are bad on offense. If we give up a bunch of points to them, that's a problem. Now, defensively, they are pretty good in defending the pass. They're top 10 in defending the pass and basically every advanced metric. They have a very effective cornerback core. They have a very good star and a very good safety, as I said uh, previously. 
And they generally speaking run a base 425, even when they don't need to be in nickel packages, which means they have five defensive backs on the field. And so it would make sense that they are good at defending the past. They're just okay at defending the run. In most stats, they're in the 60s nationally. They have an above average offensive line, and they are pretty good at causing havoc because they rush the passer a lot. And they are relatively well-trained in causing turnovers. Now, some other sort of personality stats. Traditionally, we think of Hugh Freeze, and I don't know if you know this, Yara, but Hugh Freeze kind of has a reputation as being like a run-and-gun, not run-and-gun, but a spread offense, fast-paced, run-a-bunch-of-plays per uh, per game kind of guy. But he's only actually running 71 offensive plays a game. But just for comparison, UGA is running 74. Now, the tempo of those plays in real time is still relatively high, but he just hasn't had a lot of success. So even if they're running plays quickly, that just means they're getting quick three and outs. They are running about 33% of their plays are, are run pass options where the quarterback has the option to either hand the ball off, run it or throw the ball. This makes sense because when you have a running quarterback, RPOs are your friend. And I would suspect that if I broke those numbers down even more, that those 33% RPOs, many of them ended up going for runs. They are averaging 3.2 line yards per rush, which is just basically like their line is gaining them about three yards per rush every time. That's pretty good. They're, they're, they've been a very effective short yardage running team. And they also have about a 17% stuff rate, which means they very rarely get stopped for fewer than two yards. So this is a team that wants to run the ball. They're okay at running the ball. But if you put them in a third down situation, they're quite bad. I think that, you know, there is more nuance to say about them than just they are a bad offense. But (laughs) chiefly, they are a bad offense. And it really bears out when you look at them in passing down versus running downs. And again, I'm not trying to mansplain, but just to make sure you're on the same page. We, We call standard downs basically anytime that a team can run or pass normally. That's, I think, you know, third and short or second and medium or first and 10. And Auburn offensively is actually pretty good on pa- on passing downs. They're, let's see, their passing down EPA is 47th in the nation. That's pretty good. Or no, I'm sorry, it's 33rd in the nation in standard down PPA. So when they can either run or pass, they're doing fine. But on passing downs, they are 118th in the nation. If you put these guys in a in a situation where they have to throw, they are not good at throwing. And when they are in a situation much like a Georgia Tech team that ran the option or like one of the, you know, Kalani Sataki, not Kalani Sataki, the uh, one of the Navy option teams or Army option teams, they are a team that if they can stay ahead of the sticks is great. And if they can't, they're screwed. Now, any thoughts on that? team personality in terms of how it matches up to UGA. I think that them being a kind of shit at offense is good for us because we need, in my opinion, some practice and some reps. And I'm not saying that Auburn is practice and reps, but compared to like the rest of the schedule, which is still kind of, hmm, I think it would be good to like get more experience under what I would consider a relatively younger team spelt, um, especially Carson, as well, especially like our defense, right? Like I want, I want our defense to eat and I know that they can eat, but they need, God bless them. They need some practice. Those are all freshmen. They're all babies. They got dropped off like 
maybe three months ago by their parents and said, have fun at football camp. <laughs> so I, I hope that they can keep uh, improving. And I think that this is the way to do it. I think, I don't know, our offense as well will benefit from having some pushback. And I wouldn't be surprised to see us cover the spread. I think that our, sorry, not to spoil it, but I think our model predicts us beating a spread by like a field goal by three points. So I wouldn't be surprised if we went over that, but I also wouldn't be surprised if we just hit that. Okay, let's keep going. All right, scheme stuff. Offensively, this is a run first team. Like I said, they use a true zone read a lot of the time as their bread and butter. So do you know what a zone read is, Yara? Mm-mm. It's okay if you no, don't. No, I do not. Okay. I didn't want to mansplain it to you. I'm not asking to be mean. I'm no, just, it's okay. I want to make sure. I appreciate you. I appreciate you asking. Please explain. Okay. A zone read is basically a play where the quarterback takes the snap. He puts it in the belly of the running back. And then he looks for a guy coming towards them. He basically looks for the unblocked man. On his own read, there's generally one guy on the defensive line that they don't block. And basically what he does is he looks at the unblocked man. And if the unblocked man runs towards the quarterback, he hands it off to the running back. And if he runs to the running back, he ha- he keeps it and runs it himself. Now, they zone read is their bread and butter play. And this makes sense because both of their quarterbacks can run and neither of them are very good at passing. They've been pretty effective on zone reads the whole year against passing. It, when they pass, their staple be- uh, pass comes concepts are basically deep shots they like to do what's called a high low game which is when you have one or two very deep routes where the wide receiver just runs some variation of run to the run towards the end zone and then some underneath stuff on the same play so basically like they might have a guy running a a, a fade which is where you just like run down the sideline right and then they also have a guy run like three yards and turn around and face the quarterback and what they what they're trying to do in this and kind of like Hugh Freeze's thing is to put defenders in conflict because if you have one guy running really deep and one guy running shallow you have to decide who goes where and hopefully their plan is you keep you you put a defender in conflict so he's somewhere in the middle and he can't really do anything about either of them that's the idea so they run a lot of fades fades have a reputation in sort of advanced stat circles as being bad because they're like what's called a, a a basically low risk, low reward play. Like a lot of times when you throw a fade, you either throw a touchdown or an incompletion. You're probably not going to throw an interception, but you're going to throw an incompletion way more than anything else. To this point in the year after four games, they have actually run 11 fades so far and only about half of them have worked, which is fine. Uh, Let's see. They also run run what is called a three-man surface. So basically what they do is a three-man surface is a term for when Normally, in the offensive line, you got center, guard, and then tackle, right? You got five guys on the offensive line. Now, if you run an, if you run a tight end tight to one side of the offensive line, then you have one side of the offensive line is stronger than the other, right? You with me so far? And if you put two tight ends out there, now you've got two extra blockers on that side. Now, what they, they like to do is they either put two tight ends and a halfback, or they put like two tight ends or and a wide receiver, or they motion a wide receiver across the formation to where they have like a three-man balance on one side of the formation or the other, and then they run behind that. A three-man surface is just a word for when you have basically extra blockers on the end of one line of the line of scrimmage. They like to run behind that all the time. 
a lot of times when they're doing running plays, they will show you either just before the snap or way before the snap where they're going to run. And the idea is we just have more guys here and you can't block it. Right. And if you overcommit to that, then they throw in an R, uh, run pass option game. Then you, if you put too many guys over there to stop that run, then they have like a little short route on the backside that they throw to where you don't have any guys anymore. So that's them offensively. Defensively, they are led by a guy who I had never actually heard of before. Uh, I think his name's like Ron Robinson or something. I don't know. It doesn't matter. He runs a 4-2-5, which means he has, generally speaking, four down linemen, two linebackers, and five defensive backs. Now, having five defensive backs is pretty normal because everyone has, like, the wide open offenses mean that there's usually four wide receivers on the field. Right. So you'd need that many defensive backs on the field anyway, but he runs it all the time. And his thing is what's called creepers. Creepers are what happens when, if you imagine a defense, right? And you have four linemen with their hand on the dirt, and then you have two linebackers standing up behind the linemen. And then you have five dudes who are just kind of like walking around. A creeper is when you take one of these five defensive backs and you bring him up to the line of scrimmage, sometimes a linebacker too, and you're, showing that they're going to blitz. Sometimes they blitz, sometimes they don't, but he likes to put a lot of extra guys near the line of scrimmage. In particular, he really likes to put the aforementioned Donovan Kaufman, who is number five up near the line of scrimmage. When five is near the line of scrimmage, when UGA has the ball, there's a decent chance that he's going to blitz. He is probably their best pass rusher. So that's just something to look for in general. I would compare him to like Javon Bullard, Remember how, like, in the stretch run last year, Javon Bullard just kept getting random sacks out of nowhere? And you'd be like, why is 22 back <laughs> there? That's basically what their number five is. So, okay. that's Auburn to this point this year. Yara, do you have any thoughts? What do you want to see in this game? I want to see us make Hugh Freeze shit his pants so badly that he does not ever think about beating Georgia ever again. I don't want to see him say anything about, oh, it's all love here. I know that we've hated each other for a long time, but I just want us to love, like you loved your fucking escorts, you. Shut up. I want to see us make him eat shit. I want to see him actively look defeated on the sidelines. I want, like, I don't know who's broadcasting this. Is it ESPN? Is it CBS? CBS. It's one of them. Excellent. I want to see on my TV CBS broadcasting Hugh Freeze's face in, like, a close-up just depressed. The visual, like, look of clinical depression. That's what I want to see. How about you? And this, doing the transitive game where you say, oh, they lost to this person and and this is how good I think that person is, is usually stupid. But I I am kind of thinking about this game on the field in terms of, of just sort of staffs and how staffs prepare for a game, if if that makes sense. So for so let's just take like the Texas AM game for for instance. So Texas AM their defensive coordinator is DJ Durkin, who is also, by the way, a notorious piece of crap. DJ Durkin was the head coach at Maryland when one of their uh, players died of sickle cell trait and was like super not cool about it, shockingly. But anyway, DJ Durkin's a pretty good football coach, and he held this team to 10 points. I'm pretty sure that Glenn Schumann and Kirby Smart are better than DJ Durkin, right? 
like currently per SP plus, mm. Georgia has the fourth best defense and Texas A&M has the 12th best. Now, any given Saturday, whatever, you can't compare things like that. But that's all a long way of saying that I expect that we have a pretty good game plan for this offense. Obviously, they're going to pull wrinkles out and they're going to try to do new stuff. And, you know, if we don't have Javon Bullard, I think that they might get a play or two off on us just because, you know, he's a big piece of our defense that's been missing. But if we have Mikel Williams back and we have some kind of Javon Bullard, I feel really good about our chances to implement that plan. So I guess the number one thing I'm looking for is that, like, I don't care how many points we score, but Auburn should not be scoring more than, like, 14 points in this game. Right? And Mm -hmm. I think that everything else after that is gravy. This is, I would say, pretty easily the best defense that we've played this year by, like, a pretty good margin. Auburn per SP plus again, just so that, you know, I'm not just eating our own dog food. Auburn has the 29th best defense in the nation this year per SP plus and South Carolina, the best player, the best team that we played other than them has the 70th best defense. So we're playing the best defense that we've played all year by a pretty good margin. So I, I expect that there will be some amount of growing pains, especially particularly in the first quarter. I think that the biggest thing is just we should crush this team when they're on offense. We, I mean, we just really should. They're not a good offensive team. I also would really like us to see – I would like to see us establish the run against this defense because they have a pretty good front and just limit Havoc plays. Their defense has really been feasting on turnovers and fumbles and interceptions and sacks. And I think even if this game is closer than we would like it to be, that as long as we do what we need to against their offense and just limit turnovers, we're going to be fine. Those are the two big things. I guess the third thing, if you want me to like call out a particular person, is I just kind of think that this might be a really big game for Brock Bowers. There's there's a couple of reasons for that. One, they have a very good pass defense, but other outside of Donovan Kaufman, their pass defenders are a touch undersized. They're like not that big. And I just think Brock Bowers is the right kind of player for an untested team in its first road game. He is very clearly Carson Beck's security blanket. And I think that that's not going to change. And I think that when it gets loud, which it will in Jordan Hare, and when it's a close game, which it probably will be in the first half, that Brock Bowers is who we're going to look to. So those are, I want him to just like make the most of that opportunity. So predictions, Yara, what are we thinking? Uh, Vegas line, UGA 14 and a half to 15. CBCR2, Sam predicts uh, UGA 34, Auburn 13. I, oh, let me also say Justin's. Justin predicts UGA 34, Auburn 17. Or I think UGA is going to score 41. And that math tracks, I think. Ready? Because 7, 14, 21, 28, 35. Yeah, that's five touchdowns. And and two field goals. I think that just seems right to me. And Auburn, 17. I think they're going to do something like two touchdowns and a field goal. That, if we can keep them to that, maybe, please. Um, Yeah. What do you think? I think that... Kirby Smart is smart enough to do a pretty good job against this 
offense, which is bad. And traditionally, Kirby Smart tends to just to destroy bad offenses. I don't know how much we know about our offense or defense to this point in the year because we haven't played anybody good. But I do trust that Kirby Smart knows how to game plan these guys. And especially if we have Javon Bullard back, I feel pretty good about it. So I think Auburn's probably not going to score more than 13. So I'm going to say UGA 31, Auburn 13. I think it's going to be an uncomfortably close game in the first half because, you know, we're at their house and it's the first time and we've been inconsistent this season, particularly in the first quarter. I think that in the second half, we might pull away from them because I think we just have a fundamentally better team that's better coached. And I think that this is going to be a pretty easy victory, but one that we feel pretty bad about in the first half because this team is not talented offensively, but their defense is pretty good and prone to causing turnovers. And if they get a turnover in a short field, they might score, which is exactly what happened against UAB. So that's where I see it ending. I think we're going to beat these guys. I hope that this is the first of many losses that they take. And if for some reason, I don't think they would, but if for some reason, some Auburn fan listens to this, it's really not personal. I don't even really hate Auburn that much. I just like hate Hugh Freeze so deeply that I just need him to be out of college football. So this has been Chapel Bell Curve. If you like what you heard here today, we would really love it if you gave us a rating or review on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever fine podcasts are served. If you would like to get in touch with us, you can hit us up on pretty much any social media that we know or care about. That would include Instagram, Facebook, TikTok. Uh, we have a threads. We got a blue sky out there. We got a Twitter. You can hit us up on any of those places. DMs are open at Chapel Bell Curve. If you want to send us an email that we will eventually check, you can hit us up at chapelbellcurve at gmail.com. If you would like to join a burgeoning, powerful, turgid, I would say exciting, dynamic community on our Discord, you can find us on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Chapel Bell Curve. As little as $1 a month gets you access to our Discord, which we think is full of fun people who you will enjoy having fun with. More money gets you access to a free raw audio feed. Well, not free, but a raw audio feed for patrons only. And even more gets you access to our stat sheets, our notes, and eventually access to our brains because you get your own segment on our podcast. So we will catch you this weekend in parts unknown or in the loveliest city on the plains. But until then, go dogs. Go dogs.